0: Too many British Columbians feel that no matter how hard they work, they can't get ahead. Today and every day, your government is working hard to make life better. The problems facing British Columbians today are hurting people and leaving communities behind. Government is making choices to change this. Instead of letting costs rise uncontrolled, your government is making life more affordable. Instead of leaving communities to fend for themselves, your government is improving the services they count on. Instead of focusing on some, your government is opening doors for everyone.
1: This is Vancouver Province Columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun Columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go Inside BC Politics. right welcome to another podcast what you heard there was the voice of the lieutenant governor janet austin with the speech from the throne kicking off a new session of the legislature in victoria and rob it's interesting days at the legislature and the throne speech traditionally kicks it off they're typically kind of bland uh in by uh historical standards not a lot of Detail the throne drone, as they call it. What did you think of this one?
2: Yeah, the circus is back in town at the legislature. All the MLAs are here. Lots of drama and intrigue going on, and not so much around the throne speech, which, as you point out, they're usually vague. The real details come in the budget, which is coming up on Tuesday, and that's kind of when the rubber meets the road, the money starts flying out, we get a real sense of what government's doing. So I remember back in the Gordon Campbell days, throne speeches were a big deal. You would suddenly have Campbell pivot the government... 180 degrees into some brand spanking new territory on you know aboriginal reconciliation or climate change and not so much under christy clark she loathed using throne speeches for announcements because she wanted to have events with people wearing hard hats and the ndp government is kind of a little bit more on the christy clark side Their throne speech is vague they would prefer to to just kind of roll stuff out with actual people so not a lot in there um, we got a, a further clip, I think, from the, the LG, Janet Austin. We'll hear her now just talking a bit more of about some of the things that uh, the government was saying in the throne speech.
0: Making life better for people starts with the choices we make every day. This government is putting people first. A belief in people is at the core of the confidence and supply agreement negotiated with the B.C. Green Party Caucus, which provides strong and stable government for British Columbia. This agreement in shared priorities and shared values, has allowed government to make progress on the things that matter most. Affordability remains the biggest challenge facing B.C. families. Many people are working two or three jobs, commuting farther for work, and spending less time with their families just to make ends meet. But no matter how hard they work, they cannot seem to get ahead. Rather than letting costs rise uncontrolled, Government is doing everything it can to make life more affordable for families. Last year, government cut MSP premiums in half, saving people up to $450 a year and families up to $900 a year. This year, BC will eliminate MSP premiums entirely, saving families up to $1,800 a year. This is the largest middle-class tax cut British Columbians have received in a generation. Last year, government froze ferry rates on major routes, reduced fares on non-major routes, and brought back the 100 per cent weekday seniors' passenger fare discount. This year, government will maintain its freeze on ferry rates for major routes and discounts on minor and northern routes, helping the 22 million passengers who use BC ferries each year. For too long, hundreds and millions of dollars were taken out of BC Hydro while customers were stuck paying higher rates. Government is nearing completion of its phase one review of BC Hydro and will be taking steps to protect ratepayers and ensure proper oversight as the corporation provides affordable, clean and reliable power for generations to come.
1: Okay, kind of hitting on that affordability theme again, right, Mm -hmm. that we heard a lot in the last election and it seemed to work well For Horgan and the NDP talking about people are having a tough time making ends meet we need to help them out and I guess it was a good talking point for them in the election help get Horgan into the premier's office. What kind of affordability measures have they outlined in this throne speech here now?
2: Yeah, if you closed your eyes, and it, it could almost be an NDP campaign ad. Maybe just yeah. have John Horgan pop up at the end, say "Vote NDP." <laughs> I mean, it's basically very similar language to what was used in the election: putting people first, affordability, you know, making government work for you—all of those lines. So there were some populist measures in there, which uh, immediately kind of got the headlines. Another ferry freeze. So on major routes, BC ferries, this is the second year now of a ferry fare freeze.
1: Very popular on Vancouver Island, of course, where the NDP hold a lot of the seats. So. <laughs> That's right.
2: That one works out for them. Yeah. Uh, there's a move to go after mass uh, ticket bots, you know, the, the when you try to get your concert tickets for Loverboy and you discover that they're all sold out and uh, to become some sort of Russian software bot, uh, pick them all up and is selling them for eight times the price on StubHub. There's a reference to going after that. I don't know how they do that, Smitty. But
1: Nothing worse than being shut out of your Loverboy no, tickets. I mean, we know those that. Those leather pants
2: don't watch themselves when they're <laughs> strutting around stage,
1: but... What about those Russian ticket bots, though? Aren't they people too? Don't they deserve a little love from the throne <laughs> speech? Come on, give them a break.
2: Well, how do you block? How do you block Russian
1: ticket bots? <laughs> well, you in, know in, in what? The law in BC. This is the thing. Like a lot of provinces across Canada have taken a look at this idea, and like you say, it's a populist measure because nothing burns people more than they want to go see their their favorite artist or whatever. They go online to try and buy tickets, and they find out every single ticket has been snapped up within moments. And now the only way you can possibly go see the show you want to go see is to pay through the nose from one of these online scalping sites like StubHub or whatever. And we've heard a lot, there's been a lot of really good investigation and and good journalism on this about, like you said, the, the, the bots that have been involved that snap up these tickets online automatically and then someone is creaming off huge profits, reselling them. And I think government's, across Canada I've seen an opportunity to take some action on this something is like you said real populous. like people will say hell yeah clamp down on those on those bots I'm sick and tired of this we've seen Alberta do it we've seen Ontario do it interestingly though it's like you said though it's tough to do I yeah. mean this technology it's kind of like an arms race like every time the regulators try to bring in some sort of new restrictions or tricks to try and foil these bots they find a way around it, and in Ontario, for example, they've brought in similar regulations on it, and they've had a tough time still putting a, a, a stamping it out. So you know, it sounds great, but I guess the proof is in, can they deliver?
2: Well, I mean, there's there's an idea, I guess, behind it that maybe government could find some way to force the cancellation of tickets uh, that are bought or sold based on this software selling, these Russian bots. Maybe if they could identify them, more transparency on how many tickets are actually for sale at an event and how many are put aside yeah. for, you know. But there are a lot of high-powered lobbyists employed by the good folks at uh, Ticketmaster and Live Nation and StubHub who have been in Victoria meeting with government ever since they first announced they might crack down on this, arguing we're not the problem. Here are various other reasons that are the problem. So government has taken its sweet time on the idea of some type of scalping protection legislation, and I did not get a sense in the throne speech on how they're going to actually do it. But once again, it's great politics to mention it. And another example of great politics in the uh, throne speech which caught me off guard was going after high cell phone bills. And there's a reference in there to... Increasing transparency on cell phone bills because cell phone bills are are quite uh, unaffordable for middle class British Columbians, including the youth, which was an interesting reference to try and uh, insert a little bit of young blood into the uh, somewhat geriatric government. But uh, it is there's an example of a federally regulated telecommunications sector all handled by the federal government, that British Columbia is going to do something on, who knows, we don't know what, but it sounds great when
1: you read it. Yeah, it's another one that grinds people's gears, right? When they pay those cell phone bills every month, they can be exorbitant, especially if you've got rung up on extra, extra time charges or usage charges or something, and you get some nasty surprise on your bill, that your bill is higher than you thought. Maybe there's some hidden fees on there. So the government is talking about transparency on the bills, which I guess is fine. I guess that doesn't necessarily mean your bill would be lower, though. You know, I mean, if they're saying that we're going to force these companies to be more upfront and transparent about hidden fees and that kind of thing, I guess that's one thing. The other thing that was referenced was they need to work with the feds and encourage the federal government to do something like this. A lot of federal jurisdiction involved in this type of thing with telecommunications and cell phone plans. But again, sounds great. Uh, maybe it's one that a lot of people would say, thumbs up, heck yeah, go after those cell phone companies. I want to pay less for my cell phone. But whether they can actually do it and make a significant difference, that's a different story. But you're right about uh, being a bit of a surprise. kind of came out of left field a bit, didn't Mm -hmm. it? Well, I mean, theoretically, there's nothing the B.C. government can actually do about
2: it. So it's kind of weird to have it in there. But you add those issues up, and they, they are populist measures, and they did not go over that well. With the chief ally of the government, uh, Green leader Andrew Weaver, have a listen to what he says about the throne speech.
3: Uh, We see uh, some good things, obviously. We're we're pleased that the government is continuing down with its path towards clean BC, although ironically, um, immediately following that, uh, and the the irony wasn't lost on me, they start talking about LNG. Uh, Of course, we've made it very clear to government that we have no intentions of supporting any legislation this session that would enable the generational sellout embodied in their plans for LNG. However, we're excited to continue to support the direction of Clean BC. One of the things we noticed in the throne speech is it seemed like a bit of a laundry list of of rather populist issues, whether it be cell phones, which I'm not sure they have jurisdiction to deal with, or, or ticket scalpers, or, or other kind of populist type approaches. It looks like the government's trying to, to uh, you know, please people by taking some concrete steps. What was really missing um, was a vision, a vision for a prosperous future grounded in innovation, grounded in kind of a, an economic uh, uh, agenda. So, so we'll continue to do what we can to ensure that government has such a vision. We've provided them with Clean BC, and we'll continue to push forward in that regard.
2: What, um, is, is there any... Do you have any indication from government they need to bring in legislation on LNG? The throne speech is kind of vague on what they're bringing in. Is it
3: legislation? They will need to bring in legislation or actually at minimum repeal legislation. If I were a big multinational and I knew on the books was the LNG Income Tax Act, I would be concerned that a future government could enact that legislation. That legislation as you know has passed but it was never enacted but could be enacted through Order in Council. I suspect the BC NDP will need to repeal that to keep LNG Canada happy. Told them we will not support them if indeed they do move down that approach to try to repeal it.
2: So Smitty, he's coming back saying basically, you know, that uh, a throne speech that lacks vision in his mind. But he also then pointed out that um, he does enjoy the references to Clean BC, which were pretty vague in the throne speech. But we're expecting to see some money put aside for the climate plan called Clean BC in the budget. Uh, incentives for buying heat pumps, incentives for electrifying your home. Um, helping government meet its climate plans. Then he took that and said, but it's it's ironic to him that the Clean BC plan is mentioned in the same breath as liquefied natural gas. And there's a mention in the throne speech of government having to do something uh, to get the kind of last eye dotted on this deal with LNG Canada for their big liquefied natural gas plant in Kitimat. And the Greens are saying and have been saying they will not support the NDP. If the NDP try to bring in some type of legislation on LNG... The NDP have been trying to find a way to not bring in legislation on LNG because they don't want to have that showdown. Andrew Weaver saying if it's coming and it was indicated in the throne speech it might be, that's going to be a problem for the NDP Green. So well, not a favorable reception to the throne speech from Andrew Weaver.
1: Yeah, I mean, saying that a throne speech lacks vision is just kind of, I don't know, kind of a talking point from a politician that is just so kind of vague or... Weak, I think. I mean, what does that mean? There's no vision. It means they're
2: out of gas. That's the
1: other one that's always used. This is a government out of gas. Out of new ideas. You know, I think a challenge for Weaver these days is to try and differentiate himself from the NDP because after he lost, his side lost the referendum on proportional representation, which I think was the big sort of gold ring that the Green Party really wanted, didn't work out for them. They lost that referendum quite. Quite by a large margin, that's off the table now. They're not getting proportional representation, so I think it's a different dynamic now for the Greens. Now there's, they still continue to have their governing partnership with the NDP. There's there's no reason that this the, the Greens would want to bring this government down and trigger an early election. At the same time, they prop the government up. There's a challenge I think for Weaver to try and look different. That he's not just Weaver's or Andrew Hor- or or John Horgan's lapdog you know, that snaps to attention every time Horgan pulls the choke chain on him. Mm -hmm. So he's got to look like he's being critical or trying to put forth a different or unique vision from the NDP at the same time he supports the government. So I I guess that's what he's up to here.
2: Well, he could could differentiate himself if... In fact, an LNG vote comes down to the NDP and the Liberals voting together on LNG, because LNG is the baby of the Liberal government, the previous government. They're unlikely to vote against a small LNG tax measure that will help secure that investment. So you could have the Greens being the only ones voting against LNG, and maybe that benefits them politically. They're able to point that out in their fundraising and say, look, we're the only ones standing up for our coast and our environment. It, it, that may be a move for Weaver there.
1: That, there may be a, a real interesting kind of pivot point on that issue in in the down the road, if another LNG project reaches a final investment decision stage, like right now, this this project has been approved, and Weaver said, "Okay, I'm willing to go along with this," even though we had said that a single LNG plant in the past would blow the province's climate change targets out of the water for greenhouse gas emissions. Then he kind of said, well, okay, we can live with this one uh, as long as it remains what they call a two-train LNG Mm -hmm. plant. That would be enough, but no more. The company behind LNG Canada the consortium has said there's an option to expand it, almost double in size really, to a four-train plant. And Weaver has said, no way, if they try to double it in size, we're we're out of here, we're not going to support it. Or what if another one, there are a lot of other of these uh, proposals out there, what if another one comes along to a final investment decision? That could be an interesting point where Weaver won't be able to go any further with it. But, you know, I guess he can point to the clean energy plan and saying, this is something that we've achieved with this government and we've forced them to bring in this plan to reduce, dramatically reduce fossil fuel consumption in the province, this 2040 date to have 100% zero emission vehicles on the road in the province so you wouldn't be selling any more gas guzzlers, supposedly. How are they going to get to that? That hardly hasn't been explained. But I guess it's a good talking point for Weaver in that if when you ask him, well, what exactly have you achieved out of this partnership? That's one of the first things he's going to point to is this clean energy plan.
2: Yeah, although I think, you know, it benefits, LNG benefits the NDP because it helps them fight the narrative of being Dr. No, as the Liberals frame John Horgan, against all resource development, against all job generation, helps them win votes in the interior, the wasteland of British Columbia outside of Metro Vancouver where the NDP have almost no seats. So in the long game... It may end up benefiting the NDP more to be pro-LNG because they eat a little bit of the liberal lunch. They grab some of the center votes than it is to cater to the green position against it. But I guess that's the kind of electoral politics we talk about closer to the election. Oh, I
1: think I agree. I mean, I I think that LNG plant was just absolute political gold for Horgan that kind of fell in his lap. The, The liberals did a lot of the heavy lifting on it before the election. The LNG were very pessimistic and cynical about it before they got into power. Then suddenly, Horgan's premier, and he's able to deliver this thing. I mean, the Liberals were just gnashing their teeth. They were so frustrated yeah. that this thing got approved on Horgan's watch after they had done a lot of the heavy lifting on it early. And like you said, it insulates Horgan against those arguments that he's this guy's going to destroy the economy or he's going to freeze up investment in, in the province. I mean, he's delivered this thing, which is the biggest not only the biggest private sector investment in B.C. history, the biggest in Canadian history. And it's why Horgan was very worried as well when we saw a few weeks ago that those arrests of those blockades, because there are some hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation that are still opposed to the project, and they got arrested up there in some pipeline protests. and So that's another one that sort of scared Horgan that if this thing somehow goes off the rails through uh, Indigenous opposition to the project in some sectors, that it's, it's, a, it's a threat to him. But certainly he uh, he loves that LNG plant. It's great for him.
2: Yeah. And also great for the NDP, going back to the election, the two main issues that really drove their campaign in 2017, housing and childcare. Now, they show up in the throne speech in vague terms. Childcare is a reference to continuing to try to fully implement the childcare plan. And questioning Horgan about that after the speech, what you, you realize that is not a reference to fully implementing $10 a day childcare this year. Uh, that, and if you're still hanging on to your uh, weathered NDP election platform from 2017 thinking $10 a day child care is just over the horizon, uh, no. It is a continual rollout of this version of child care the NDP have adopted on subsidies, so you can get like a $325 subsidy depending on your income and your child's age towards child care, plus pilot projects in different locations for $10 a day, and the NDP are going to continue to grow that out. Very slow move on child care because it costs so much yeah. money. And I think we'll see probably more on that in the budget. So maybe it's deliberately vague in the throne speech. That's fine. Housing, there was a kind of a victory lap in the throne speech uh, saying that, look at all the things we've done on housing. You see that the market is cooling. You see that the prices are lowering slightly. There's more places to rent. I mean, those may be debatable points in where you live. But uh, it was a little bit of a victory lap in there. I, maybe the argument is... The housing market is cooling. I don't know if it's all because of British Columbia's actions, but those were two big references in the throne speech, Smitty. That I think, I mean, they're going to be embedded in every single thing the NDP does because they were so important in the last election.
1: What about the renters rebate? Was that in there?
2: Not in there. No. Oh, what a shock! No, I, they still insist that's coming <laughs> over the life of the government. Oh, really? Is the, is oh, the, yeah, okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But, yeah. You
1: know, this is one of those ones where uh, Horgan it was a flashy promise for Horgan during the election. And I remember covering that news conference that day where he rolled this out and you know, the promise was, well, we, we can't forget about renters. Always people keep talking about home ownership. What about the renters? They deserve something too. So here's what we're going to give you cash money in your hand, 400 bucks a year, cash in your claw. I mean, this is just an awesome promise. You know, people just, if you're renting, you kind of loved it. And I remember the, uh, The liberals were so frustrated about it. I remember talking to Christy Clark saying, well... 400 bucks, you know, that's a year. nothing, that's yeah. peanuts, that's not going to make a difference in anybody's life at all. And Horgan's comeback on that was, well, it's 400 bucks more than she's offering, which yeah. is basically zero. You know, you know, drop the mic kind of comeback, great line for Horgan. And then he gets into power, and it's we haven't seen a whiff of this thing ever since. So when the government started hinting early this week that, oh, there's going to be affordability measures in this throne speech, I started wondering, hmm, are they finally going to come up with this 400 bucks for renters that they promised, but no, not there. Now, that may be a pre-election budget. Maybe island. they roll it out right before the next election.
2: But, I mean, to give the NDP credit, I guess, they have done a lot of the heavy lifting on the renters' regulation side. So, rent yeah. Yeah. Uh, eliminating yeah. loopholes and fixed lease renters. I mean, they've gone That's at true. the nuts and bolts of the renters' problems, which, inexplicably, the Liberals never wanted to touch. And that was another blind spot in their radar that they just... They could not see themselves to boosting the power imbalance between renters and owners and trying to figure out landlords and renters and what's fair. They just they didn't want to touch it. So I guess the NDP will point back to that in the election and say, you oh, know, we didn't give you the cash, but we gave yeah. you all this other stuff. Yeah. Maybe that works for them. I, I don't know. But, yeah, you're right. It's another huge a huge issue. So I'll get a lot more details on that in the budget. But the throne speech here – I guess, Smitty, we've been talking about it for weeks, is kind of overshadowed by the other drama in the legislature, the spending scandal, the continued fallout. And we had um, some issues with uh, Linda Reed, the assistant yep. deputy speaker who's been under fire as part of the Speaker Daryl Plekis report, suggestions she inappropriately double billed for her taxi and her personal kilometers, um, so call, liberals denied, right? They they, said they did deny, yeah. yeah. Calls from Andrew Weaver that she should resign as assistant deputy speaker. Yeah. So here's Andrew Wilkinson talking to uh, reporters. And I think the voice you hear there is... Uh, Our colleague Richard Zussman from Global quizzing him about this because she did eventually step down from that position and is now no longer Assistant Deputy Speaker. And why did she do that? Here's Andrew Wilkinson on that.
1: Did Linda Reed make the decision to leave the role as Assistant Deputy Speaker or was she asked uh, to leave that role?
3: Well, the Assistant Deputy Speaker works closely with the Speaker. And so when the Speaker has made unfounded allegations about Linda Reed's parking, it's impossible for the two of them to work in a collegial manner from now on.
0: So do you think she has some responsibility associated with the accusations in that PLECAS report?
3: The only accusation in the PLECAS report came in an unfounded way from a former employee who was not terminated. That allegation was false. And it dealt with some duplicate parking charges. And in fact, that was false because it dealt with a parking charge in Vancouver and a taxi charge in Victoria.
2: So, Smitty, he's saying still that the allegations are false on this double dipping. And I did note that last week we got the response from suspended clerk Craig James and suspended Sergeant at Arms Gary Lenz. And in Gary Lenz's uh, report back, he talks about how he investigated Linda Reed's expenses and determined that the real problem was there was no problem, that she took a essentially taxi to the HeliJet terminal in Vancouver and then charged mileage coming over in Victoria on the other end of the heli trip with her personal vehicle uh, here to the building. And that it looks, maybe on first glance, as some type of double bill. But in his response, he says that it was investigated and it was not a double bill. That has not stopped the criticism against Linda Reed, And you heard Andrew Wilkinson say, just at this point, she can't work with the Speaker anymore, so... Off she goes, basically. But what do you make of that, the kind of focus in on Linda Reed?
1: Well, I think the allegations of padding her expense account on this one look a little kind of minor. I think the liberals have done a, a, an adequate job in defending her and saying, that, look, there's really nothing to this. And I guess fair enough. But then you got to wonder, well, if that's the case, then why is she stepping down from this job? Which, by the way, Assistant Deputy Speaker in the House. This is a cushy gig. It's kind of a little part-time job. You occasionally sit in the Speaker's chair. You get paid thirty-eight thousand bucks extra a year for that. Yes. I mean, this is a plum. The you hardest
2: know? job of being Assistant Deputy Speaker is not falling
1: asleep <laughs> in all the debates that you're supposed to be moderating. Yeah, but for thirty-eight thousand bucks a year, you, not could, bad. you could do that. Not bad. It's a cure for. Uh, I'll guess. tell you, that's a nice little plum for someone. So now Joan Isaacs gets the 38K a year. So, um, you know, the explanation that for Linda Reed stepping down, who, by the way, is the longest serving MLA in the whole place. She's been around, I think, is it 28, years? 28 years? Wow, that's amazing. She's
2: and yet she still hasn't learned in 28 years not to run from the television cameras, which is what she did this week. Looked guilty as all get out, even though not good. she could have talked about it, I think. But yeah.
1: 28 years of not learning some very basic political lessons. She's never been really great on her feet, especially if she's in a jam, which she's been in several in the past, and she's never been really, really good, kind of defending herself in the glare of a TV camera. So maybe that's why she just sort of runs away from the camera. But I agree with you. She does herself no favors by doing that because you just look really bad. I think, you know, Wilkinson's explanation was after Plekis, the Speaker, had leveled these false allegations against her. She can't work with a guy anymore. Okay, but I think maybe the real unspoken reason is that she's got a track record that's not a very nice one. I mean, she had to pay back it was over five thousand bucks for that trip to Africa, mm-hmm. where she took her husband along on a, a junket to Africa. You were like, I, I guess you're not on her Christmas card list, right? Because no. I mean, you did some great work on her expenses when she was the speaker, including. The famous muffin rack. How much was that muffin $744 rack? $744 muffin rack. <laughs> where, <laughs> where, what the heck? Where do you buy a $744 muffin rack? must have it custom rack. made out of gold or I something. I guess. Ivory tusks. She had some controversy around uh, renovations in her constituency office. I mean, there's been a sort of uh, a pattern of spending but, but this in is the, the past.
2: Thi- this is the thing about Linda Reed is that not a very good speaker. Got herself in a ton of trouble for her spending as speaker. But at the time, the NDP backed her. They insisted her spending was fine. They insisted she was doing a good job as Speaker. And now, because the politics have changed, they are basically want to go back and rewrite history on her job as Speaker. And I... I am no fan of the job Linda Reed did as speaker, and yeah. I have a long history of reporting on it. Yeah. But there is a bit of unfairness in allowing the NDP to suck and blow at the same time on this one. <laughs> Linda Reed was great at the time. Now Linda Reed is bad for doing the things we should, said she was great at the time on. And I just... I mean, I know politics is about managing to change your position and make it look like you never did. Jeez. But it is a, it is really... Uh, just naked crass politics to go after her now when we all knew she was doing an atrocious job as speaker just abysmal job and there were people in the liberal party who wanted her out as speaker and there were people in the NDP who were doing their best to back her because they realized she was such a liability for the liberals the longer they could keep her in that job the more she'd spend the worse it would look and now it's kind of like oh well you yeah, know, let's go back and investigate linda reed five years
1: later for better or for worse, or whether it's fair or not, she's become kind of emblematic of some of this, the spending controversies we've seen around the legislature. So I think that's the real reason that the Liberals didn't want her in, a, in that position of prominence anymore, especially because the political damage that's been inflicted by the Plekis report and this spending scandal has been really severe. And I think the Liberals have, are afraid that they've taken a disproportionate kind of yeah. share of the blame. So I think they, they felt like they had to move her out of there and they take a, they take some lumps for doing it for a day. And then hopefully they can move on from it's it. It's just amazing about politics that you can survive doing so many
2: things wrong. And then the one time you actually don't do something wrong, they bring you down. For yeah, right. And then you're and out. Um, the only other thing that's on our plate from left over from the Strone speech, Smitty, is this continued push in some quarters for a public inquiry into money laundering yep. allegations and uh, lots of great reporting out there done by Sam Cooper and others mm-hmm. uh, on this and also in the Sun and the province. But, yep. um, you know, it's interesting to hear the government look like they're maybe are considering it. And we got a clip here from John Horgan after the throne speech, which does not contain any reference to a public inquiry. Here's what he says about why they're not uh, planning on moving on that right now.
3: Maybe a public inquiry is warranted, but let's see what we get back from the two eminent people that we have already looking at this before we dive into years and years of hearings and, and, and mountains and mountains of legal bills.
2: So he's still kinda of leaving it open, maybe, but he did spend a lot of time even beyond that clip talking about how long a public inquiry takes, how much it's gonna cost, everyone's gonna get lawyers, it's gonna take years and years and years. And so I'm still trying to figure out if government's interested in this or pretending they're interested or what. What do you I think
1: there's some divisions internally on this about what to do. I think that Horgan genuinely doesn't want to do a public inquiry and, and the official explanation for it, as you just mentioned, is it's expensive. He he had another line where he said, oh, typically these things will generate some big thick report that then gets uh, dropped on some politician's shelf somewhere and gathers dust and nothing ever gets done about it. Well, I don't know. I thought that was not a very good explanation of, the, of that because <laughs> the only reason something's going to gather dust is if you let it gather yeah, dust' you know? too
2: much evidence of wrongdoing for us to tackle it yeah, that.
1: we're not going to do nothing. do something. I think people want to see some action on this. you know I think yeah. what I think what we've seen with a lot of the reporting there is we've seen a very kind of sinister jigsaw puzzle that's been put together for people, and they see the various pieces put together because you've got drug dealing and you've got over 3,000 people dead over the last two years from drug overdoses. You've got soaring real estate prices. People can't afford to buy a home in the city where they grew up. You see these dramatic surveillance videos of all the the gangster rolls of money and and the the bags of cash being hauled into BC casinos for money laundering. And people start putting together all these different pieces of the puzzle and you realize it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's just a shock. And people say, wow, this is why all these people are dying, thousands of people are dying, and I can't afford to buy a home. It's because of this money laundering and it's been going on for years and government hasn't done anything about it. Come on, let's do something about it. Now I think that one of the key problems here though is if you do a a public inquiry, you gotta have you gotta call the federal government on the carpet. You gotta put the RCMP on the stand and ask them where what were they doing. You gotta get FinTrack, the federal anti-money laundering agency and you got to put them under oath and start asking them questions well these are all federal agencies so you're gonna need some sort of cooperation from the feds there's even questions about jurisdiction or whether a provincial public inquiry could could question these federal officials so you need the feds to get on board I don't think Justin Trudeau wants any part of that in an election year saying, sure, we're going to have we're going to take our lumps in some sort of public inquiry. So I think Horgan realizes that behind the scenes that this is probably not on with with Trudeau. But there's certainly there's a lot of pressure and it's building every day for some sort of a public inquiry on this.
2: Yeah, there's a risk reward calculation going on within the NDP. The, The reward is that you can keep this issue going through a public inquiry for years. Very damaging to the liberals. Yeah constant uh, stories of just how poorly they managed this file, the impacts on ordinary people because of it. That's great political reward for the NDP. The risk is you lose complete control when you send it to a public inquiry. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know when it's going to loop back on you. You don't know if it's going to involve any of people with connections to you or your party. And that is a yeah. pretty big risk for politicians to right. take,
1: especially when the Horgan government's doing pretty well right now. I think that's a great point. I think they would prefer to keep control of the narrative on this thing because you're right, there is political benefit to this for the NDP because the liberals are the ones who look bad. They were in power for 16 years. They were the ones who were letting the gangsters run run rampant in the casinos. They were the ones who didn't want to do anything about runaway house, housing prices. So the liberals look bad. The NDP know it. They want to, I think, strategically kind of continue to slime the liberals on this. And if they give it up to a public inquiry, like you say, then they sort of lose control of it. So I think that's a critical component of this and why you're seeing the government um, try to stay away from it. Another thing, though, that like on the other side of it, though, you've got public opinion polls showing overwhelming support for public inquiry. You've got more and more municipal politicians speaking out very convincingly for the need for one you've got the largest public sector union in the province the bcgeu um, which represents what 30,000 government employees or something have started an amazing full-on press public campaign demanding a public inquiry they represent the workers in the casinos for one thing they say that you know they're fed up seeing this so there's a lot of pressure building and one of the main talking points in favor of an inquiry is look what they did in Quebec with the Charbonneau Commission, which looked into corruption in the uh, construction sector in Quebec. Now, that inquiry in Quebec cost $35 million. Now, that's a lot of money. But they did get some results. They arrested a lot of people, people went to jail. The mayor of Laval, Quebec, went to the Houssegawi, went to jail. <laughs> Um, they recovered a lot of money. If you talk to people who were involved in that inquiry in Quebec, they'll say, yeah, it cost $35 million, But guess what? We recovered $95 million in misspent public money. We actually got it back. We actually made money on the thing and put people away. And it was. I mean, there's a good argument that it was effective. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman who was at the front of that commission, by the way, her name is France Charbonneau. She is a former judge. Tough as nails public prosecutor, she put away the Hells Angels in Quebec. Remember, there's a guy named Mom Boucher mm-hmm. who was the head of the Hells Angels in Quebec. She put him behind bars and then she became the head of that commission. So I think that's critical too. You got to have a great commissioner at the top. And if you do that, You can get some stuff done, and there's some people making a real solid argument, I think, that we can do that here in BC, and I think Horgan's going to look a lot more, continually more uncomfortable if he refuses to do it.
2: Yeah, well, that's going to develop over the weeks ahead, and next week, Smitty, we're going to be talking about the budget, which will be uh, another fascinating insight into the NDP government. You know, they could go big, they could be spending a lot of money, a bold agenda, they could be... Kind of doing the populist stuff we've seen balanced in the throne budget, speech. Again, right? I I would bet it's a balanced budget, but yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's lots of factors at play there. Where are they going to get more revenue? How are they going to uh, spend their money? So we'll be back next week to talk about that and all the other crazy, wacky stuff that's going on in BC politics. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or check our website for the feeds for your favorite podcast foot player. Thanks for listening.
1: Talk to you next time.